You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Buckle, 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 buckle. <laughs> you know the deal. This is me, though. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're all too kind. <laughs> Here we are for Can We Talk episode 17. We have Eric out on a mission. I don't, I don't know what that means. Right, um, out on assignment. Out on assignment. Yeah, that's that's the term. Uh, Keith is on his way. How you doing today, Shayna? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, how's your weekend so far? Amazing. You know, I didn't expect it to be so amazing. Oh, there he is. I was like, where's my mic? There it is. Oh, okay. Well, she, she she said her weekend is going fine. And she asked me, hey, Anthony, how's your weekend? So I'm like, yeah, my weekend's amazing. You know, I um I went out and got myself a record player because I'm getting into vinyl. And okay. Guess what I saw for $14 at FYE? What? Illmatic. Really? Yeah. I copped it, and it was um it was glorious. I, I went digging in my mom's vinyl collection. You know, she was more confused than anything. Like, don't you know about iPods now? I'm like, yeah, of course, but vinyl is special. Yeah, vinyl is special. So I've been listening. There's to- a, uh, a vinyl shop out here in Royal Oak, but when I saw Atlantic, it was like 30 bucks. Was it the anniversary one? Or was it might have, it- yeah, it yeah. was, I think it was the 20 year anniversary one. So yeah. Plus, I pre ordered some classics online. I, I mean, ordered some classics online. I just, I, I got giddy with it. So I've just been That's playing great. Luther Vandross and Stevie Wonder in my room recently. Okay. How was your, how's your weekend been? It's pretty good. Um, my birthday is on Tuesday, so... Happy birthday. Thank you. I went out. Uh, it was just supposed to be a little trip to a, to the bar. That's what I was told. But there was cake and balloons and stuff like that. You gotta, so. Come on now. Don't, don't, don't let them take you to the bar. We got to be easy on the 40-year-olds. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just messing around. I saw Murder on the Orient Express today. How was that? It was pretty good. You know, um, I feel like it was... Um, a nice throwback to the old uh, Poirot stories. I forgot the detective's name, how to pronounce it, but it's P-O-I-R-O-T. Mm-hmm. All-star cast. Johnny Depp, uh, the woman that plays the female Jedi in Star Wars, Daisy Ridley. Michelle Fife. I call her Michelle Fife. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty nice. It was dope. It was dope. Yeah, okay. I'll check it out. I wanted to see it, but I didn't realize it was coming out this weekend. So i definitely go check that out. Before we get into our topic today, I got to say something that's on my mind. This sexual harassment thing is like... Man, it's... Louis C.K. surprised the hell out of me. That's my boy. Yeah. That's misconduct, but still, you know, it's still in, in line. Yeah. And then he actually owned up to it. Yeah. I've heard people say that he, he did what was... Out of all the people that said, um, oh, I don't remember doing this or... Um, Oh, I'm not going to speak to that. People like kind of like kind of like applauded him for what he said. Like, OK, well, he apologized. You know, um, it doesn't mean it's not right. But at least he had the, he was the only one out of all of these that gave a like sincere apology. But yeah, because wasn't he about to like premiere a movie and then they like totally withdrew the yeah, movie and the film. Um, yeah, the film is called I Love You, Daddy. And yeah. I think it, in some ways it's kind of an homage to Woody Allen because Louis C.K. plays a guy whose daughter, whose 16 year old daughter is being like wooed by like a 50 something director or something like that. And he, when he was promoting the film, he was like, well, I guess the main theme of the film is you never really know anybody. So mm-hmm. most people got kind of like disturbed, like, wait, is he apologizing for Woody Allen 
but um yeah that film got um the the produ- production company that was producing it the orchard they uh said they're not gonna produce it anymore um and then charlie the charlie sheen revelation that i mean i don't know i'm like not that. surprised by charlie sheen but i i don't know about that one what do you mean you don't know about it? I mean, because then Corey Haim's mother came out. Because Corey Haim, a friend of Corey Haim said that Charlie Sheen molested him when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And Corey Haim's mother came out and said, no, nah, it wasn't him. But she said, I think she said it was another person. Mm-hmm. She didn't, I don't think but she. But they're not naming names. I didn't read the article. I just yeah. saw that, you know, she said it wasn't him. It wasn't Charlie Sheen. But yeah, so many people bro, got allegations. Brett Ratner, Dustin yeah. Hoffman. The man who created Mad Men, Matthew Weiner. It's like, dang. Yeah, but like, we already had a whole episode about this. But I feel like I like when, when people have power, they're going to use their power to, you know, fulfill their, you know, sexual desires. I'm not trying to justify that, but that's just no, it I just seems like that's what that's what's going on and i feel like as long as there is a hollywood as long as there is a central location where you have to go to get these uh particular opportunities they're always going to be casting couch incidents it's I, not right well it's definitely not right well yeah they, they're always going to exist but what i like about this is that um this will probably like at least bring some awareness to it and because some people who do this some of them don't even know they're doing something wrong I think uh-huh. I think some of them just think like, okay, well, you know, I, I I fool around. You know, boys will be boys. No, the Louis C.K. thing, you knew you were wrong. Listen, Louis knew he was wrong, but even he said like, you know, oh, well, you know, I I, I thought I could read people. It, it was different in those days. And, yeah, it's kind of an excuse, you know, just an excuse. But I think some of these people, they don't think, well, is it too bad? And then they realize that some people were like, yeah, man, you kind of inru- uh, in- disrupted my space. And they felt like, oh, my bad. Eh. Some of them, not all of them, but yeah. But yeah, but the I just I'm just really just put off by the whole secrecy thing of it. Mm-hmm. Like the There's whole where people are there. I get the door. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but you know this um these sexual harassment allegations. I think they've opened a new window in Hollywood. I think they've let these perpetrators know, or people who are about to um, commit such a crime know that. You know, this will not stand. You know, it's a new day and age, and certain people are standing up and saying, hey, this is not right. And I think it's shedding a new light on Hollywood. I think things are going to change. I'm I be- hope so. I'm being an optimist when it comes to this. How's it going, sir? No, what's going on? Not much. I got you on the live front. Oops. <laughs> yeah, that's all. No, that's all good. So our topic today. Um, so... As relayed to us by Marquise, we're talking today about law enforcement and boundaries and basically, you know, where do we cross the line? Should we be scared? Should we trust them? Should it be both? What's what's the deal? How's it going? It's going, man. It's, uh, you know, this this is uh, came from a uh, video that I saw a couple weeks ago. And uh, it started a, a conversation between uh, me and another uh, uh, guy on uh, Facebook, and we were talking about um, just uh, the um, how you know people will take a, a little clip on my. That was my my opinion that people will take a little clip of something uh, between uh, law enforcement or a police officer uh, 
or police officers and one individual and make it, uh, you know, just give this blanket approach. Okay. There's another instance of police brutality and then they didn't have to do that. And, or, you know, um, they did this or they did that, you know? And so, um, um, uh, you know, it, I was arguing the fact that in, in this particular video, there were a, about four police officers who were, um, aggressively handling a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when the video first starts, the uh, young man is pulling away from one of the police officers who's trying to grab him. So he's pulling away from him. He like has a swing on the police officer. Then, um, you know, uh, other police officers come up and they wrestle the boy down and you see, you know, one of them kind of sock him, you know, as, as he's going down or whatever. And so everyone's jumping on there and saying, you know, on it and they're saying, um, immediately, there we go again. Here we go again. Another, um, instance of, um, police brutality, you know, and, and, you know, my response is, I think sometimes we, you know, when we see these clips and stuff, we respond before we even know the facts, you know, right. and, and right. um, you know, the, 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 the guy asked, well, if that was your teenage son, what would you do? And I was telling him, I said, well, first off, you know, I would teach my son to comply first. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, and once, you know, once everything is all said and done, if you feel that you were treated unfair, then now we need to file a grievance and, and, and we can handle things that way, but don't try to be a hero in the moment. And, um, um, you know, of course I caught a lot of flack for that, you know? And so, you know, it brings us to this question of, um, what is excessive on the part of police and what are they up against? And what is, what is it? Are the complaints that people are making about police, police using excessive force? Are they warranted? Um, and is it, to the level or degree that people make it out to be. Um, I believe, I mean, it depends on the, the department and what area they're in. I I think because I, I didn't, cause I lived in Detroit like the first 13 years of my life and that they weren't community officers. They, they, you know, like I, I would see some things, and I was like, I, I don't, I don't agree. I like this is this is excessive. Okay, well, give us an example. Like, I mean, in the nineties, you know, sure. the, the dudes they they're on the corner. Yeah. Like, and you know, they would come and like, you know, like make them leave, or and if they didn't leave, like they would like, you know. Like, take them away, and then I'm like, well, I guess he's in jail because they gone for a couple of days, and then they come right back. I just, and then, like, I guess the first time I encountered, like, community policing was in college, like, mm-hmm. campus police. Yeah, I, I got stories about that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I believe um, I can be more of a pessimist than an optimist when it comes to a conversation like this. Because mm-hmm. even when dealing with, you know, campus police, like MSU police, you know, I I mean, I've ran into like an instance or two where if I'm walking with a friend and they're of the fairer skin, like like my friend is white or something like that, I see him get treated, you know, with a little bit more respect or a little bit more, um, what do you call it? I guess I'll just say fairness. I was looking for a different word. But, yeah. And, you know, I would look at that. And I, I think um, 
it does depend on the, the department, but I also think it de- depends on the collective mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the police force is a brotherhood, and it's a brotherhood that has traditions and values and criticisms passed down through generations. It's almost like a family. Mm-hmm. And we have to criticize and try to understand why are these – we have to know when and where to use these criticisms, if not at all. Mm-hmm. I think that's my response to it. And one thing I've noticed is that, you know, even in, in, in the neighborhood – when someone says, oh, I'm, you know, I, I think I'm going to apply to be a cop, and but I can't tell nobody because they won't trust me anymore. You know, there's that, too. Like, why why would we not trust a, a fellow brother, so to speak, if they want to become a police officer? Do we think they'll fall under that spell as well? I don't know. Um, I mean, like you said, it is a brotherhood, um, and they do, you know, uh, um, you know, stick up for each other. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I guess I guess where you know where where it comes to head with me is what is excessive and what is not. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean I think each situation lends itself its own, you know, verdict as to what's excessive, what should be done and what should be not. A prime example, you know, I mean, of course, most people who listen to the show now know that, you know, I work in schools and have worked in schools for a number of years. Right. Teenagers can be the most disrespectful <laughs> kids in the world. Um, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't want to choke one of them. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, one kid flips you off in school. You're, you're ready to beat the hell out that kid, you know? Right. Um, but see, it's one thing to flip me off in school, and it's another thing to flip an officer off, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 I think in those instances, uh, somebody it, there's the the this syndrome of someone has to win, and the officer can't get punked at that point, mm-hmm. you know. In in school, in the school educational system, we're trying to ultimately win the war, you know. They they may. Uh, the the kid may have a temporary win mm-hmm. and I flipped you off and all the kids are laughing and I walk out the class, but ultimately I'm trying to win your heart and I'm trying to change your mind. So, you know, that same kid, we're hoping by the time they graduate from high school, they come back and say, Hey, that was terrible. What I did, you know, and now I see your worth in my life. I see why you were, were around. And the case of being out with your friends and running into or an issue with law enforcement, that's not the same. And so I, I don't know if our, I don't know if, if, if there's this all out assault on law enforcement as if they are all just bad and just everything that they're doing is trying to is is to no they're not all the same but i'm saying i'm I'm saying what what it looks like now it seems like the conversation now the narrative now is that you know police officers are bad and that all they want to do is shoot and kill us and i don't know if that's true all the time you know i think that's some i think it's a case-by-case scenario i mean as in how do they judge when they need to use excessive force? If if someone is, if like the instance with the um, the case down in Oklahoma where mm-hmm. the uh, black man was walking back to his truck and the uh, woman officer had her gun on him, and um, he walked, you know, he she was she claims that she was telling him 
several times, stop, don't move, stop, don't move. Now, all you see on the video is her pointing her gun and him slowly but surely turning and walking back to his truck. She shoots and she kills him. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a case going on right now. Um, That's over. Is it over now? It's over. She has her job back and her record is clean. Mm. And that's a whole that that's where our conversation is. You know, that's that's where we are. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's um, it's hard to like I know law enforcement officers retired and active. I I respect these individuals because mostly because they're honest with me about their work and about how they feel about the people and the community that they protect. And like, I guess where we're at, like with the conversation where like most of us don't trust black people, not black people, (laughs) law enforcement is because we see like incidents like that, where we feel like it's overuse of force. And then this person is not punished. They're rewarded. And it's like we've seen it over and over again. Like we saw in New Orleans, like during Katrina, I think there was a gentleman. He died in a police car that caught on fire. Mm. We don't like and because it was burnt. His body was burnt so badly. We don't know how he died. We just know that he died in the back of a police car that caught on fire. Right. And six officers tried, convicted, uh, verdict overturned. They were released. They sued. They got their jobs back, and they got back pay. Mm. Well, I think one way I want to approach this whole thing is that one case in the media that that stuck to me as far as excessive force goes towards to the point of death is the Eric Garner case. Yes, you know, and um, looking at that video, I can tell you know, um, as I'm saying, you know, Eric felt harassed by the police officers coming approaching him about whatever. And, you know, I can tell, you know, this is a big dude. So in the police officer's mind, they're like, okay, we might have to restrain him a little bit. Mm-hmm. I understand that part. But taking it almost to the point where you're, you you got like the, like two or three people on top of him. And he's saying, yo, I cannot breathe. At some point, you got to let up. This isn't the Radio Rahim scene from do, do the Right Thing. At some point, you have to let up. But you do it to the point where he passes out and dies. And, you know, in an instance like that, I'm, I'm wondering from the police officer's head, are you taught in that in in that field? Was it NY? Was it New York? Yes. Are you are you taught in the NYPD that hey sometimes situations like that you got to put on a little bit more force when it's a big black guy, not just a big guy, a big black guy, you might have to use a little bit more discretion. Like what was going on in his head? You know what I mean? Did he just like, did he just like um did did did, did the emotions run over control? Not in that control, situation, but. it was. Well, a lot of think people think because there was a previous charge on Mr. Garner's record for selling loose cigarettes that that, we, that was what he was doing at the time, and that's not what was mm-hmm. going on at the time. He was actually breaking up a fight. Oh, okay. And the police officers came to the scene, um, and the individuals that. that were at the scene, including that you know people were recording, were saying, "Hey, he was breaking up a fight. Like he was not the person that." But the officers weren't listening to the people that to the witnesses. So I have my issue is why aren't you listening to the people that are there? Like you automatically go to assault this man because he's tall, he's large and he's black. Right. That could be another thing, too. They, maybe they could. Maybe they probably heard in training. If if you got witnesses around yelling at you, oh, he was just doing this. He was just doing that. They might be that guy's friends. 
you know, use discretion. Maybe that maybe that was something that was implanted in that guy's head. That's what I'm trying to look at. Like what what made him go over the line like that? But he wasn't the only he just so happened to be the officer that, you know, did the choco. But he wasn't the only officer that assaulted Mr. Garner. Well, I guess all of them. Like what what was in their mind frame? That's that's what I what I wonder about. You can't help but think that, uh, you know, big, black, um, you know, overbearing, um, you know, Mm -hmm. may a threat, basically. And so, you know, the first thing is let's subdue the the threat and then uh, go from there. But when, like you said earlier, you know, when this this uh, man began to say, I cannot breathe. Right. um, At what point do you not let up? You know, I mean. There's eight of you all and one of him. You know, eventually he's going to have to give in. You know, he can't fight you all day. But, again, I think a lot of that goes to um, the thought process of not wanting to look like the loser. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the police have to at all times be the authoritarian. Um, They are the ones who, you know, carry out the the law, you know. Mm -hmm. And so – they are not at any point in time going to put themselves in a spot where they look like I'm losing. I don't have control of the situation. And so that's what I think a lot of the excessiveness comes from. But I also think that, and, and, and just being honest, I think that some people bring that on as well. You know, I don't think it's always the narrative to me is that police are always excessive with blacks. And blacks in particular. Right. And I don't think that that's all true. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think that sometimes we bring that on. It's like, um, I I remember walking home one day from school and, um, a friend of mine, police car rolled past us and, uh, it was cold. It was cold outside. So they had their window up, but you know, he just decided to yell after police. So if they heard him and they came back, are they going to come back and be nice? No. You know, they just felt disrespected. You know, like you just disrespect the law enforcement. So yeah. they're going they, – they, they would have met us at the same rate that we came at them. You understand what I'm saying? And then if neither side is willing to back down, they have to be excessive at that point. And I think in their thought process because I think they think I got to win this. We can't. There's no way I can lose this fight. Man, I I went to Michigan State. Like I can't like I like I've seen how like different officers treat like different individuals. Right. I like what year was that? That might have been two thousand and seven. <laughs> I was um at an apartment complex that was slightly off campus and I'm like, it's going to be a riot. Like, these people are begging for tear gas. Like, it. I saw a couch come out of a window. I'm like, I'm, I'm about to go home. I went home. I went to sleep. I woke up, and MSU was on CNN. Well, you know what? You and I, we know that stuff's about <laughs> to go down. You and I know this. But, you know, I remember when we run the Rose Bowl, people were rioting. Burn the couch. See the village. I'm like, yes. I'm like, y'all, we, we, we can all gather around and have fun. But come on now, we won. Let's not get in the mob mentality. Like, I don't understand. I can never understand mob mentality after your team wins, after they win. Like, and if they were 
I don't know. Like, if the cops were, like, attempting to, like, meet aggression with aggression, like, it would have happened earlier earlier than what it did, like, right. the, with the whole tear gas situation. Right. And and to counter argue your part, uh, your, your point, Marquise, about, uh, Marquise, about how you feel like the police, you know, it, they're not they're not always targeting blacks. I mean, I would bring up the example of there were these white guys. I don't remember specifically where it was. I think it was in Michigan. They walked into a police station with um, I believe it was not riot gear, but they they walked in with guns. And it was kind of like they were making a statement or something. Dearborn. Dearborn. It happened in Dearborn. The two individuals. They yeah. walked into the police station making a statement with guns and they walked right back out. And that was that. Now, come on now. If those were black <laughs> guys, what, what, what would be the situation? Oh, they'd be locked up. No. <laughs> I, 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 I don't even think they will see the inside of a jail cell. I don't, yeah, if you walk into right a, a, a police station with a gun, you know, that like they were always trying to make a statement. Like, no, like the whole Clive and Bundy situation, like that could never go down with a group of African-American individuals. Wow. There's a point there. There's a point there. Like the whole, like, we bring it on ourselves. Like, and then the whole thing where they didn't meet, like, the law enforcement didn't meet their aggression with more aggression. The aggression on, you know, Clive and Bunny supporters, they, it escalated to where they went to a courthouse with guns. Yeah. I'm not too familiar with the Clive and Bunny situation. And they walked out alive. <laughs> hmm. You know, and I want to go back to the whole point of, um, betrayal within the community like if someone in your community says i want to be a cop mm-hmm. and you know it's, it's somewhat look at looked at as betrayal i remember i was in atlanta for a family reunion about one or two years ago and this was when um black, black lives matter was probably at its apex it mm-hmm. was probably at its you know heightened popularity and i remember there was a um right there was a protest going on the police were guiding them they were guiding the protest making sure they were okay and there was a person uh, riding through and saw a black man as a cop, you know, standing as guard. You're on the wrong side, brother. I'm telling you right now, you're on the wrong side, brother. Have a good one. Have a blessed one, I think he said. And that just stuck in my mind. Like, I, I hear what he's saying, but at the same time, couldn't it be a good you thing? you better than me because I don't hear what you're saying. We need more African-American police officers. Like, we need more people that can relate to the community to police that community. Well, I guess, I guess, I guess the, the impulsive part of me that said, I, I hear what he's saying is that, Hey man, and you know, they're, they're not on our side, but like you said, another part came in and said, well, maybe it's best that we're on that side. Maybe it's best that we probably keep things in line. But then again, you got something to argue against that, that it's a brotherhood. Yeah. I, um, I have a friend. Um, I was giving her daughter a ride. Her daughter is about seven years old. So, <laughs> um, you know, we're talking, you know, I'm having, you know, a conversation with a seven year old like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, I want to be a police officer, but my mommy doesn't want me <laughs> to be a police officer. Right. And I was I just told I'm like, we need more, you know, police officers like that want to be police officers. Like, right. I don't think it should be like a profession that you just, you know, that you kind of fall into. I think it's something that you need to, you know, want to do. Do you think that uh, a white should uh, work, white police officers should work in the city? You or said work, what? Do you think that white police officers should work with, uh, in, in a black community? If you live there. 
See, it, but now what's the difference between the white officer living there and the black officer? That I think live that there? you should live in the community that you police. Period. No black or white? Black or white. Okay. I think you should live in the community that you police because that's, that's your community. That, I feel like once, like you, like once you, like you're implanted into a community that you don't live in. I don't feel like you can care about that community. That's a great point. I've heard this before. Like if you, if you're familiar with that community, you should be the one police in that community. You know, because if, if the one person goes in there and they don't know who's respecting, who's not, who's a good guy and who's not, some things will go down in the community. It's like, damn, y'all don't care about us when that may not be the case. That person just didn't know who was who. But what I mean, how is that any different from my work? I mean, I work in I work primarily in the city, but I don't live in the city. So should I not work? You're not a police officer. You don't have the right to shoot somebody or put a chokehold on them if they get out of line. Yeah, but I mean it's the same. You doing, uh, like you do important work. I get what you're saying. Yeah, like, I yeah. mean that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, just like in, in any instance, you know, just like teachers that don't come from the city. You mm-hmm. know, or social that, workers. That, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, should you not work in the in the inner city because you're not living currently residing in the city? Well, Is, I mean, do you think that? I mean, I'm and I'm just. You know, creating a, a question for, you know, for conversation uh, purposes. Do you think that in every field of work with dealing with um, maybe in a government, I guess, in a government setting, uh, every field of work dealing with uh, African-American people in the city, do you think that those people should live in the city? I think there could be an alternative. You could have kind of like an, an ambassador almost, you know what I mean? Someone. I think that I mean I think that the, I think that we should like if we're in like a uh like a service position like I'm in a service position firefighter I know a fire a Detroit firefighter that lives three hours away uh-huh. three hours from the city that no <laughs> this is too general though I mean I feel like we we, we got we have to do this by roles I think having an ambassador isn't bad. Maybe having an ambassador to tell you how things are in that particular community, that's not bad to have. Or at least someone that can just, like, kind of educate you. I get that. There's also another alternative. I remember comedian Eddie Griffin brought this up in a Vlad TV interview where he was like, you know, some of these cops, and he was referring to L.A. cops, but cops in general. You know, if you put cops on the beat on the street for so long, it messes with their head a little bit. So most Sometimes it will. Most of the time it will. And you got people that are in the office. He believes people should rotate. People in the office go on the street. People on the street go in the office and keep it rotating. I think it's it's a psychological thing, too. Mm. I can agree with that. Yeah. But like you, like you, like, like, like Marquise, he doesn't live in the city, but you're from the city. The city yeah. So should you be penalized because you moved out the city? But you still come to the city and work in the city? We are penalized. We pay taxes. Well, <laughs> we still got to pay Detroit tax. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think you should be penalized. I ain't got nothing more to say to that. I don't think you should be penalized. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, that that is that is a narrative that is out there. Like, you know, you moved out the city. Why, why do you want to come back and help the city? No, you moved out, you know. There's always going to be resistance. Where, where that stems from, that's... that's um, I guess that that tours into a different conversation where the resistance comes from. Maybe some people feel you're trying to fix something that ain't broken or you're fixing it the wrong way or, you know, they might bring up the G word, gentrification. It depending on what it depending on what situation. But 
stems from a lot of places. I just think we got a lot of haters out there. You know, right. I, I mean, I'm just going to keep it real. I just think you got a lot of haters out there that, you know, pe- folk just going to say something regardless. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people are just going to say something regardless. Even if you live in the city your entire life and never leave the city, that's a problem to people. Mm-hmm. You know, that you never left the city. So you don't know anything but the city, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, then you got those who moved out the city and who come back and they say, well, you think you're better. Right. It's the classic Chris Rock joke. <laughs> think you're better than me because you got your GED. You know, I mean, and, and that's and that's not the case. It shouldn't be the case. But, you know, I mean, jealousy and envy runs deep with some people. That's just human nature. Yeah. How do we stem the tide of um, resistance from uh, people with the police? And police understanding the demographic and the culture in which that they work with. In your opinion, I mean, you know, how how do you all think that that we stem that tie? Because I think that's really where the heart of this lies. Is that, and I see it even on the educational level. But in terms of policing, um, you know, how do we get officers to understand? the type of people that they're dealing with. I think that people think that sometimes it's a blanket approach and and it's not, you know, it's not. I think it has to do with kind of relating back to what I said has to do with ambassadors and it has to do with research. I think a a little bit of uh, on the beat research needs to be made. And I need to like, what are you policing? Are you policing people? Are you policing a stereotype? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. That's a great question. Like I like I said, I work, I'm a social worker and I work with people that don't serve people. They serve stereotypes. Mm. And it, it's very disheartening, you know, to work with people like that. Break that down a little more for 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 What what does that look like who's the the the, the person who serves stereotypes? Um the person I, in my field of work, like mm-hmm. the person that serves a stereotype, they're not sympathetic. They're not empathetic. They're all about I'm going to get my job done. I got to make sure I ser- I do this amount of work to make sure I still have a job, make sure I'm not written up. Whereas a person that's sympathetic or empathetic, they like, what are you doing here? Today is your day off. Well, I have to make sure this person's not getting kicked out the house. So if I have to come in for an hour on my day off to make sure that that's happening, if I can, I'm going to do it because I, this is my client. Like I, like I answer the phone. I answer the phone. I'm, I'm always on the phone. I'm calling my, I call my clients. I, I call the people that I serve. So I know these are people that I know. So a lot of times, like they don't, a lot of people, they don't answer their phone. They're not answering their phones. And I mean, that's, and, and that's frustrating for me to watch because we're not, we're not, uh, we're not selling something. This is the last resort. Mm-hmm. They can't go anywhere else. And a lot of people treat it like it's a customer service job, but it's way more important work than that. How do, how do we, um, and, and and before moving on, then the other side of that, you talked about the stereotype, then serving the person. What what does that look like? You know, you like you know the person, like you know, 
you know, the people that you're helping, you know what a lot of things that people say aren't true. Like a lot of people think that there's a lot of like fraud, you know, with like social services. And that's simply it's not true. It's not true on the client side. A lot of the fraud is on the retail side of it. Like Mm -hmm. the people that are like providing like the service that are getting paid directly by the state. Like that's like, you know, the child care providers, the grocery stores Mm -hmm. that a lot is most of the fraud is on that end and not on the end of the client. Now, it, with, with, without you being maybe too um, telling us too much about what you do, what what type of work is it that you do in social service? I uh, guide people to services uh, to based on their needs. Mm-hmm. Like, are you about to like what's going on with you? Are you about to get kicked out? Well, then you need to contact these people about getting assistance with either uh, eviction, helping you pay with your for to rent to prevent eviction, or security deposit and moving expenses. Uh, what do you need? Did you just move? Do you need furniture? So it's like I'm guiding you towards different community resources. Okay, okay. So it's not like, like the DHS office uh, or like um, I think it's like – Social services, in the sense of like a bridge card or or uh, healthcare, stuff yes. like that. It is, yes. Okay, so let me ask you this: When people come in and they come in for those services, are they wanting you to help them in their time of need? And they the thought process is, "Well, I only need this for this moment." How many of them do you see transition off versus those that stay on? I don't see a lot of people transition off. Mm. Most of the people that I serve are second, like second, third generation. Generation. What services are being put in place to try to help that person? I don't have, like, I'm not disillusioned by what welfare is. To me, welfare is to control the behavior of the poor. Nothing more, nothing less. I don't think it's there to, because like the way that we, I don't think that it's there to help people transition off mm-hmm. because it, I, I, that's some I don't of the things that, that are put in place. You yes. know, I know my mom was on it and, you know, I remember, um, you know, growing up on welfare, on welfare, uh, we couldn't, I don't think she could work more than like 20 hours or something a week. And I'm like, the father couldn't be in the home or something like that, you know, so it, it, when it's set up that way, it's not set up for them to ever move out of survival mode. You know, it's like. They call um, the cash assistance It's called temporary assistance for needy families, but it's only temporary. It's not temporary because they want you to move off of it. It's temporary because they're only going to help you for a certain amount of time. Wow. And see, the other side of that is on the educational side. um, and, and and I think all of this stuff is interrelated. Um, mm-hmm. You have teachers who work in a school system who aren't sympathetic or empathetic to the the clients in which that they serve. So you see it out in this, the public with police officers. You know, Shane has talked about even in in the social service area, which is a big area where people go to when they're at their last resort and they're looking for help. And then you also see it in the educational system where especially black boys. I mean, when when they don't conform immediately in class, they are put out. 
get out is is what they hear. You know, they they hear you're suspended, you're going home, you're put out of here. And mm-hmm. um the the problem is we are not as as I see it, I just see that we're not sensitive to the demographic that we are servicing and I don't even think people care. And I and, and what I what I'm trying to get to the point is at what point in time do we address this? Because it looks like like Shane is saying, a person who's on government assistance ends up on government assistance for basically the rest of their life, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so they're now subservient to the government. You know, this is how they survive. And they live in survival mode forever. The kid who's in school who has to go to a public school is barely getting an education in the first place if he doesn't have a sub uh, in his class because the teacher quit months ago. You know, he's getting a subpar uh, education. And if he or she does not conform immediately to the ways of that class, then they are kicked out, which leaves them in survival mode for the rest of their lives. The streets got to eat. It puts them in that in that in that position. The streets got to eat. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I just at what point? How do we deal with it? Like, like what what steps can we take to stem this? The, I and I honestly don't know because I feel like if they purged. The department in which I work of the like the individuals that because a lot of the individuals that I feel like they lack empathy or sympathy for the people that we serve. It looks like that on paper. Mm. There are certain guidelines that we have to follow. We have to service these people immediately or at minimum within 30 days. And you and then like 45 days, 60 days, like it's showing up on paper Mm -hmm. that you're not doing your job so but i feel like if they purge the department of these individuals it 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 uh, i i honestly don't know (laughs) but do do we think if if the law changed as to okay you're you're getting this help but this help is only going to be there for you until a year or two years do you think that would change the thoughts and minds of the people who are coming in for help they're rolling it out now. If you're an able, what they call an able-bodied individual and you don't have any pen- dependents, you can only get food assistance for three months. Mm. That's interesting. Well, ju- just to tie it back to the original question, this is all interconnected, but trying to draw the line between policing the people and policing stereotypes, well, how do, how do, you, how do you distinguish that? I don't, I just, I don't, I I really don't know, like, how we can do that, like, for each, like, individual person or each individual officer. I mean, because, you know, I believe they are trained a little on stereotypes. It's called a different word. It's probably not called stereotype. But they're trained on something like, hey, this is a specific type of individual. You will run into them. And I believe they will run into them. But how do you make the distinguish between policing a person and policing a stereotype? And are we, as people, as people that aren't in law enforcement, are we responding to a stereotype of mm-hmm. how we feel like all police officers are right. when we encounter them? That's deep. That's deep because I believe there are some – and you're trained at the home, you know, with parenting and everything else and with your friends, nature versus nurture, that there are some police officers that are a stereotype and some that are more than that. Yeah. Yeah, I like a lot of people that I know, they aren't very empathetic to police officers. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's a very traumatizing job. They see so. a lot. It's a nasty approach, really. Uh, you know, from from the point I, I know. You know, growing up in the hood. You know, people always talked about hating the police mm-hmm. until we need to call the police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we hate them as long as, you know, we hate them until we need them. And then when you need them, it's, everybody's yelling, call the police, call the police. There's, there's a classic joke on Martin where um, Martin and his gang, Martin Lawrence, they need the police. So when they caught the operator, they tried their best to sound like white people. And the operator was giving them like trivia, like um, who's such and such cast member on Friends? Because Friends was like the show back then. And somebody gave the wrong answer, said, "I'm sorry, we will call you back when we are when our line's clear." Like, boom, like it's 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 funny, it's silly, but there's some truth in that a little bit. You know what I mean? Like maybe you know some police. I know there was there was something that went down in my hood uh, where someone got robbed. Police didn't come until like three days later. What is that? Well, I mean, I I think that now you get into like specifics in terms of right. manpower. You know, um, who, how many squad cars were out on the shift that night? Uh, yeah. What were they responding to? I mean, there there have been some precincts in Detroit where what should be a normal twelve car night maybe were only three squad cars that night because of call offs. You know, and, and I don't think people always think of that. And so, you know, when you if something like that is going on. Then um, the priority is is always you know shooting you know or killing or something like that. So, and that was just something that I learned from being around uh, some police officers in Detroit uh, when they talked about you know especially uh, the a couple years back when they had the twelve on twelve off shifts and they were doing those rotating shifts and man the morale in the police department was so low at that time. That, you know, you were, you know, people were definitely using their personal time, their sick time. You know, they were calling off left and right. And so, you know, you would have some districts where, you know, like I said, it should be 10 squad cars out in that district alone. It was maybe two hmm. or three. Or they were having to get help from another district because, you know, they only had three squad cars out that night. Yeah. And there is also like a like a massive shortage of police officers in Detroit. It is. Yeah, They're but, hiring like crazy. Yeah, but they start off really low. Yeah. <laughs> like the hourly wage for a police officer in Detroit is is really low. And if you didn't know the numbers, like, you know, you know, the numbers like, um, you know, like crime is always going to be an issue. When you're in a city with mass unemployment or like where the employment is, you know, double the national rate. But the crime rate is going like it goes. It's going down. But like if we just were I thought we were just uh, the most murders per capita per capita. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's still it's still bad, but it's not as bad as it was compared to the 90s. Like. And there were a ton of police officers back yeah, then. Yeah, we had a lot yeah. of police officers back yeah, then. It was like a 10,000-something force right yeah. there at that point, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's – I don't even think, think it's 2,500 uh, now or maybe – I mean, I, I don't know the exact yeah, I number. I don't know the number. But I know at, at its lowest point it was about 1,500, Yeah, you know, uh, police officers. Okay. Okay. So I think – Trying think- to police a, a city that's uh, 189 square miles or something like that. Yeah. And – so. With a lot of unemployment, thirty percent. Yeah, unemployment rate. Like I said, streets got to eat. You know that you, you have to you have to keep that in the back of your mind. The streets have to eat. Yeah, but 
I think it's about that time where I guess I should ask you to uh, what are your closing statements on this? Um, I just feel like the onus is not on us to create a better relationship with cops, like with police, with law enforcement. They mm-hmm. should create a better relationship with us and become community officers, not, you know, so re- like from my viewpoint and I may be wrong. I just feel like a lot of like what they do is reactionary when it could be proactive. But like we also see it like there is a massive shortage of cops. So they might not necessarily have time, you know, with, you know, within our city limits to be, you know, proactive. But I still think that's something that needs to be done. Mm. Uh, it starts at the home. <laughs> it starts at the home. Uh, and we must, we must, you know, I, I think we must uh, change the, uh, and this has been my word today, the narrative. Mm-hmm. We, mu- we must change the narrative in our homes with our kids and with adults. And um, we, we can't continue to see the police officer as the enemy. Um, you know, we have to see, begin to see them as a friend and um, a partner in this stake, um, you know, in, in our communities. And I agree with Shana. Uh, we need community police officers. We need, we really should go back to what it was when, you know, when I was a kid, we used to have um, the little substations in your neighborhood. And there was a police, a police officer that was in that substation and he was from the neighborhood. And so you could just go right to him, you know? Um, but, um, I, I, I do think it, it takes both sides. I think we have to work with police officers and I think they definitely need to work with us because we are their client. You know, I mean, they only get paid because our, our tax dollars. So, um, you know, I, I just think we got to begin to, uh, have better relationships with them and it has to work from both sides. All right. Well said. Well, this has been another episode of Can We Talk? Please like and share, spread the word. Everyone have a blessed weekend.